Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to um, another edition of Word in Your Ear. Now, our guest tonight uh, talks about, in the introduction to this fantastic book, uh, which I could not recommend more more highly, Roots, Radicals and Rockers. He talks about uh, the dead ground, as he calls it, uh, of British pop culture between the end of the war and the rise of the Beatles. And in this dead ground, uh, uh, various everyday features of post-war life that have proved immune to Nostalgia, and he lists them: uh, conscription, uh, cod liver oil, smog, carbolic soap, polio. I know. Isal medicated toilet paper. Yes. And the, yes, I know. I, I, I think you can still get it actually. You still get it on Amazon. <laughs> you can. I'm It'll not cost you. On, on eBay, on eBay, eBay, yeah. eBay. And the gallows as well. And he adds to this uh, this august list uh, also skiffle music. Uh, the great engine of UK rock and roll because he feels, and quite rightly I think that it doesn't have the recognition it deserves so here to set the record straight in fact the book is subtitled How Skiffle Changed the World please welcome Billy Bragg Thank you all so, Billy, I mean, there are fantastic moments in this that make points that I'd never actually realised. This is the first music by teenagers, for teenagers. Um, extraordinary things. Why, why first did you decide to write the book and, and when did you decide to write it, actually? Uh, it's kind of been coming for a long time. I've been interested in Skiffle for a while because it has so many similarities with punk. And as, as a 19-year-old in 1977... My uh, perspective on punk really helped me looking back at Skiffle because there's so many... Obviously, the DIY music thing is, is really obvious, but there were fanzines, you know, there were uh, people uh, writing the names of artists and things on their clothes. It was... That perspective, I think, was, was really welcome. Um, also, I'd, I, I was doing this rap... Um, we're introducing for a while when I had a band we were playing Dead Flowers by the Rolling Stones and uh, I doing this rap about how the Brits invented Americana it was a tongue in cheek thing mm. really that I started doing to annoy the Americans and but when I did it in, <laughs> when I did it in the UK when I mentioned Skiffle and Lonnie Donegan I could audibly hear people in the audience sniggering and I was like this 
yeah, this is wrong. This is not right. This is this deserves more credibility. And the reason why it deserves more credibility is because one of the time I met Lonnie Donegan the first time uh, was at the invite of John Peel. And Peel invited me out to dinner with him and Lonnie Donegan, um, and, uh, which was great. And I got to meet Donegan. And we got on like a house on fire. We talked about Woody Guthrie. I just made Mermaid Avenue. We talked about Skiffle, obviously. We disagreed about politics. No surprise there. But um, Peel didn't really say anything in the course of the evening. He kind of just sat, sat and just sort of nodded and smiled. And it transpired after when I spoke to my, about, to my plugger, who also came along, that... The reason Peel had invited me was because he was so in awe of Lonnie Donegan that he wanted me there to talk to him so he could listen. And I kind of realised... We're talking about John Peel here. We're not just talking about, you know, some guy off the street. When you think of all the people that Peel has inspired and knows, you know... Um, yeah, he told me he was the man who lit the fuse for him, Peel. I was at Peel's house once and he played me Frankie and Johnny by oh, Lonnie Donegan at yeah. 3 o'clock in the morning and he cried throughout the entire well, thing. Well, here's the thing. Because about six months later, I was at his house doing the radio show. And, he, you know, we were on air, but he was playing music, so we weren't actually... Our conversation wasn't on air. I said, what was all that shit about Lonnie Donegan, you know? What was all that about? And he went in the back and he came out with Rock Island Line 10-inch and his eyes filled with tears. Yeah. And the point about this is... I understood then that something had happened to Peel in the same way it happened to me with The Clash. Something really deep. It wasn't just novelty music. It had really changed his world and in some ways made him who he was. So, I, and you know, you listen to people like Van Morrison talking in the same terms and you realise there's something going on there that's not really getting the credibility that it should have. So I wanted to write a book that, that put Skiffle into its context in British pop culture because the, the, the Skiffle kids really were our first generation of teenagers. So a couple of important points before we go any further. Is it true you can get Eisel toilet paper on? Yes, you can, yeah. 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 You can. And they're still making it, apparently. Who would want in what, dark, <laughs> in what dark corner of the web can you find that? Just Google it, man. It's there. Yeah. I think people are using it as tracing paper now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK. And the second thing is, the question that we always ask people on the, on the uh, Word podcast is... is Describe the music reproduction equipment in your house when you were a child. Uh, it was a reel-to-reel tape machine. My parents realised if they got me a reel-to-reel tape machine, I could tape stuff off the radio. They wouldn't have to buy me no records. All right. So I, I and it was it weighed. It was like a huge thing. It was, uh, and I was 11 years old. And what I did was I, I sat by the radio. You know, when the charts were on to record the songs on top of the pops and record it. But the best thing was that my friends elder sisters had the brilliant record collections so you know I'm my first big influences were the, was this, the music that I got on those tapes when I was 11 that really moved me it was Simon and Garfunkel and Tamla Motown Chartbusters volumes right. 2, 3 and 4 and 5 Right. And that was all the music I had until my little brother came along and they bought him a record player Oh that's nice And a record Oh What was the record, was the record? they bought him? It was Ernie, the fastest movie. Yeah, okay. Well, that's that's a very good, very good. 1971. <laughs> and my brother was never interested in music. So then, then I had a record player, and then I got a job, a, a Saturday job, in a hardware shop, which had a record player in the base, a record shop in the basement. And not only was I able to get cheap records, I was suddenly very popular at school. Right, right. So you were born when? At Peak Skiffle, 1957. Right, 1957. Peak okay. Skiffle, it is. It is. That's right. And the story starts with, I mean, the, well, the first person that you to focus on is is well obviously is
is Lead Belly. Lead Belly, yeah. The so, greatest, the greatest uh, folk artist America ever produced. And and I that say that as an acolyte of Woody Guthrie. And there's a brilliant quote, which everyone thinks that George Harrison saying, without Lead Belly, there'd be no Beatles. But actually, what he said was, without Lead Belly, there'd be no Lonnie Donegan. Without Lonnie Donegan, there'd be no Beatles. Yeah. He said it, unfortunately, he said it to Rolling Stone. I'd never heard Lonnie Donegan say so it. just left him out. He's cut in the middle of the sentence. Yeah, just yeah. too long. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Literally. Who cares? Whatever. Who? So for those poor benighted souls who don't know anything about Lead Belly, tell us the Lead Belly story. Lead Belly was born in Louisiana. He was a sharecropper near Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, in the late uh, 19th century. Uh, He was a, uh, a kind of musician very early on, originally playing barrel house piano in joints in Shreveport. Um, he uh, killed a man and had to uh, leave, go to Texas where he was actually arrested and put into prison uh, for a while. And then he got out of prison again and then he was involved in an altercation in which uh, he stabbed a white man. And he was nearly lynched as a result of it. But in the end, he ended up in um, uh, Ang- Angola no, he ended up in... Uh, that's in Louisiana. He ended up in... Uh, Parchment Farm? No, not Parchment mm-hmm. Farm. The one that's just outside of San Antonio where Midnight Special is about. What's it called? Okay. I'll get it uh, Sugarland. Sugarland okay. Prison. And while he was there... Um, John A. Lomax and Alan Lomax were coming around recording for the Library of Congress, recording... Um, uh, Negro work songs because they believed that that's people who'd been in prison for 20, 30 years would have older music and Lead Belly they actually in the prison he had a role as a performer in the prison they used to get him out when dignitaries came and they'd dress him up and he would play songs for them and so they they found this guy who was an incredible fountain of, of songs I mean Lead Belly was, was, was just incredible and when he was paroled he wrote to uh, John A. Lomax and said, Mr. Lomax, you know, I'd love to come and work for you. And it just happened that uh, his son, Alan, who was his assistant, um, helping him to carry this huge recording equipment around. I mean, really, you know, like a, like a, a fridge freezer kind of size recording equipment. Um, he was ill and couldn't come on a, another trip, so he got Leadbelly, he hired Leadbelly to come and work with him. And they went to um, uh, a prison... Uh, called Cummins Farm in uh, Arizona in 1934 and a group of uh, eight singers led by a guy named Kelly Pace came in uh, from the fields and sang this song Rock Island Line as a kind of almost like a spiritual song uh, like a um, eight part harmony it definitely wasn't a work song he, he Lomax put it down as a work song but there's no way it was ever... You, you couldn't chop wood. Lebelly used to say it was a wood chopping song. You couldn't chop wood that fast. It's ridiculous, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, it, was just a, it was just one of the songs that they sang, you know, about, about getting the train out of prison. John A. Lomax needed a big machine and a notebook in order to record that song. Lebelly heard it twice, and he went away, and he added some more verses, and he made it into his own song, as you can see. Right. And that was, that was his great skill. Yeah. He not only could he uh, write songs like Bourgeois Blues straight out of the hat and stuff like that uh, but he could also hear a song recognise it's a really really good song and then kind of add to it so he used to he used to John Lomax used to take him to his presentation didn't he his, his kind of shows that because he, he didn't do normal shows did he John Lomax he no. was doing kind of semi-academic yeah presentations he was, uh, he was trying to he was he was he went to Harvard um, he went back to the northeast to New England and um Hitherto, 
they'd only had recordings to hear these songs. Now they had Lead Belly. Yeah. And Lead Belly came along. And for, for many of these academics, this would be the first time they'd heard what was referred to at the time as a vernacular singer. In fact, they wrote a book about him. The Lomaxes wrote a book about Lebby. It was the first time a vernacular singer, what we call a folk singer, yeah. a non-professional singer, had ever been written about. Yeah. And Leadbelly, um, because Mr. Lomax, you know, some of the songs Leadbelly learned, he learned in situ, working in the fields. So he would explain what they did while they were singing these songs. But some of the songs he didn't have a story for, so he made one up. Right. And Rock Island Line was one of those songs. Right. You know, initially he talks about it as being a wood chopping song, and then he introduced this railroad thing about the railroad guy um, fooling the, 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 uh, the train driver, fooling the railroad engineer. In Leadbelly's song, in Leadbelly's version of Rock Island Line, um, what happens is the, the, the uh, signalman tells the train driver to go in the hole he's a freight train to go in the hole to let an express train go by but there's an exemption if you've got livestock for animal welfare reasons so he says to the train the train driver says to the signalman I've got sheep I've got goats I've got horses I've got all livestock and he says okay you can go on through and then he rolls on down the line and he shouts back I fooled you I fooled you I've got pig iron now pig iron I think is lead belly making a pun you know it's pig iron you know pig iron you know that's the original story. Donegan adds the idea, the weird idea of the toll booth in the Lonnie Donegan version. But by doing that, he kind of watermarks his version. So if you ever hear anyone sing Rock Island Line and in the intro they mention um, a toll booth, they've learned that from Lonnie Donegan. They have not learned it from Leadbelly. And a good example is Johnny Cash's first record for Sun uh, opens with Rock Island Line and he mentions the toll booth. So well, just think feeds, about that. Yeah. Bloke, bloke from, from East Ham records Lead Belly song yeah, yeah. Uh, John, and, and influences Johnny Cash. I mean, it's like mind-blowing. Yeah, it's yeah, fantastic. When you think about it, well, there's more of that to come. But that feeds directly into the next character who you concentrate on, which is Ken Collier. And Ken yeah. Collier's the trumpet player, the corner player of the... Uh, of the Ken Collier is the most influential bloke in British music you ain't never heard of. Ken Collier. Yeah, that's true. Because he, he kind of kickstarts the, the trad jazz movement. And trad jazz has a, has a bad rap now because for many of us who um, experienced it, saw it in terms of Ackerbilk and Kenny Jazz and his ball band. Well, actually, <laughs> actually, the, the trad jazzers in the late 40s and the early 50s were the absolute hipsters. They were the absolute hipsters. They believed that mainstream jazz, big band jazz, crooner, you know, taffeta dresses, yeah, yeah. 15 members, all that kind of stuff, that white bread stuff was anathema to them. And that the real jazz, only real jazz, was made in New Orleans at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. But the problem with that was the only way they could hear that music was off of records. None of these bands, these trad jazz bands, ever toured because they were old men now playing in New Orleans in hole-in-the-wall dives to people who were in their 60s and 70s. You know, it was old music. Yeah. But also um, there was a musicians' union strike. There was a yeah. musicians' union yeah. ban on American bands touring in the UK, which was a reciprocal ban because the Americans wouldn't let British band leaders tour with their musicians in the US unless they um, took out American citizenship. <laughs> yeah, so it was a recipient. Anyway, so, so, so they had to... Collier and his, and his mates could only learn from the original recordings. Now, these original recordings were made in the 20s and the early 30s, uh, often with one microphone. So the musicians who were playing on those original records blew very hard. 
to make sure they got into the grooves. You know, they blew it. So Collier and these young guys in the late 40s, they thought that was how you played trad jazz. So they blew the shit out of their <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as a result, after about 30 minutes, their lips were so numb they couldn't play. Yes. Yeah. So then, in order to not lose their audience, which was in, you know, rooms as same size as this, you know, the bar was through there, in order to keep people in, they would put down their brass instruments, pick up acoustic guitars and uh, a washboard and the bass from the jazz band and more or less play Lead Belly's repertoire. And this was what they called the breakdown band. And this was the beginnings what what turned into Skiffle. It becomes, from their inability to, to have any technique... To play, uh, yeah, yeah, to play proper jazz, because yeah. yeah. uh, there's no way to learn. I mean, you know, yeah. they, you, you, Chris Barber learned to play trombone by sitting on the edge of the stage in the under club and watching um, Humphrey Littleton's trombone player, and you know that was the only way you could learn. So it was, it was that neat. But ultimately, um, Collier realised he could only get so far um, with the records and that these old guys were still playing in New Orleans. So what he did was, the only way you could imagine a working-class lad in 1951 getting to America, he never met anybody. I mean, going to America was like going to the moon in those days, not least because the government restricted the amount of money you could take out of the country. Yeah. You can only take five pounds <laughs> with you. And, you needed and it a, involved four flights, didn't it? Yeah, and you needed a permit to go to America as well. So the only way he could think to do that was to join the Merchant Navy. But unfortunately, the Merchant Navy, you get a job and a ship on a taxi rank basis. So you go and ask for work, you get a chip with the name of a boat on, you have to take that and they have to take you. It's not like, oh, where would you like to go, son? It's like, here's the work, you're on. <laughs> so he went, first of all, he went to Australia with the five pound poms. Then he went to, I think he went to the Gulf of Aden. He went to the Baltic. Uh, it's the fourth trip, the fourth boat, after 18 months, went to Mobile, Alabama. And when he got to Mobile, Alabama, he jumped ship got himself a tourist visa and he went to New Orleans and he found he found these old guys but there's playing. a lovely bit that you mentioned where he's on the boat and uh, he's playing the guitar there's, there's various other musicians there's a guy playing uh, a suitcase with wire brushes he takes he's his trumpet amazing. with him yeah. on the boat he takes his trumpet with him and he's like, like myself He's not musically trained. He just plays. He's one of those, It's only when he gets in a professional band later that he realises that he's been changing key and doing all these kind of stuff. But what he's been trying to do, he's been trying to replicate what he heard on the grooves, you know. I did a gig once in Japan, in Osaka. The support act was a guy in a robe wearing a long kind of uh, Arab turban went down the back a Japanese guy who sang exactly like Howling Wolf. If you close your eyes, it could have been Howling Wolf. I went up to him afterwards to say to him, man, that was the most incredible thing I've ever heard. He didn't speak a word of English. <laughs> he had learned the whole thing phonetically, and that's kind of how Ken yeah. learned to play trad jazz. And also, there's the, all those... You, you go into it in great detail. It's fascinating. There's the, the Dixieland, and there's Ragtime, and there's yep. the Spasm Band, yep. and there's well, Homemade all, Instruments. They're all basically... What we're talking about is uh, African-American roots music. So you talk... You, you know, you start with Ragtime. Really, Ragtime is the first pop music. When, when African-American uh, uh, piano players start to syncopate, that's when pop music starts, when things stop being written down. You know, and that's the, that's the beginnings of popular music there, right there. And then that... Jazz kind of, this is a fighting talk in New Orleans, but jazz kind of comes out of that in many ways. But New Orleans is a really important place. Um, in, the, in the book, there's a whole chapter about New Orleans jazz because I thought I've got to get people to understand why trad jazz was so important. And 
I've come to the conclusion writing this book that New Orleans is the most influential music city in America for British music. Not New York, not Chicago, mm. not Los Angeles, not San, Fran- yeah. San Francisco, but New Orleans. Because it's so unlike any other American city. New Orleans is a Caribbean city. It's not an American city. I mean, it was speak people there spoke different language from English. They were Roman Catholics. There were already um, uh, mixed race people there when it joined the Union because they'd fled from the slave revolt in, in Haiti. Um, you know, all the, the context of New Orleans is completely different. It was the I think it was the when it joined the Union in, in the Louisiana Purchase. I think it was the third largest city in the United States of America, and. To get to the interior of the United States of America in the 19 in, in the, uh, the the early uh, uh, 18th century, 19th century, you can only really go up rivers, and the biggest mm. river of all was the Mississippi. So, in some ways, everything had to go via New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. So that idea of the culture of New Orleans was much more influential than than say New York. There's no river from New York to to Chicago. No, you know, you got to go yeah. across land. But New yeah. Orleans, when you know, you could go up that river to the very heart of the United States of America, and, and everything that was in that heart before Went the railways down. came yeah. it was coming down that way yeah. so so it's like a city no other city in, in North America is like New Orleans so Ken Collier's in New Orleans he is hanging about with musicians and, uh, and learning what he can but he starts to write home doesn't he well like everyone did in those days you couldn't afford a phone call right. so he wrote to his he was writing his brother I mean he's, he's basically meeting his heroes yeah. I mean you know it's the equivalent of going to the cavern and seeing the Beatles you know and there they are in front, in front of you and because he knows all their repertoire from the records, they invite him to get up and play with them. You know, not only does he go to Mount Olympus, but he gets to sit in with the gods. And he's writing home to his brother Bill. His brother Bill is passing these letters to the editor of The Melody Maker, who's carrying this, this, this story. I mean, for his uh, readers who were into Trash Jad, I mean, it was the most incredible thing. To imagine going to New Orleans, just the idea that you went to New Orleans. Yeah. But, but then to actually play with, with these guys. But, the, but then he's arrested. Presumably it wasn't, you know, if you were one of those musicians in New Orleans, you weren't used to people coming up to you wanting to know you weren't used if so-and-so one, was you still alive. You weren't, you weren't used to pe- young people coming up to you? No. You know, young people, young African-Americans at the time were into beatbox. And yeah. modern jazz, you definitely weren't expecting European. No, no. And so that though had problems of its own because when Collier went to renew his visa, uh, he wasn't able to renew his visa on the day it was due to be renewed because unfortunately it was the 25th of December. So the office was closed. He went the next day. And he was promptly arrested. Now, in those days, if you had a, overstayed your visa, they put you in a hostel until you could be deported. They arrested Ken. And they put him in jail, and they wouldn't let him have any bail. They wouldn't bail him out. It was so unheard of. There was even an article in the New Orleans uh, newspaper. Why is this seaman being held 38 days? People came with money for his bail. His friends in New Orleans, they wouldn't let him out. And although it's never stated, the implication has always been um, that he was in jail because he'd been playing with African-American musicians. Right. Because when, he, when they said, we'll let you out on bail, what will you do? He said, oh, I'll, go, I'll go straight back to play with those guys because th- this is what I've come here to do. Yeah. So when he got back to England, he was, he was a hero, wasn't he? Well, I mean, because he's still, he's still writing to his brother. Now he's yeah. in jail in Louisiana. Who else has been in jail in Louisiana? Yeah. <laughs> 
the big fella, Lead Belly. So you know, when he when he comes back, when he finally comes back to uh, to uh, England in uh, uh, early 1953, he's like the, the trad jazz Moses. You know, yeah. he's he's kind of like the man. He's, yeah. He's, yeah, he's been there and he's done it. He's here to tell tell you how. And his brother, rather cleverly, has talked Chris Barber. Who's, Chris Barber's trying to put together a, a trad jazz band. He's talked Chris Barber into letting Ken take over the band. So it's it's Ken Collier on trumpet and cornet. It's Chris Barber on trombone. Monty Sunshine on uh, clarinet. That's the front line. And you've got Jim Bray on, uh, on bass. I can't remember who's on the drums, but Lonnie Donegan on banjo. Oh, banjo. This is the key thing. Yeah. And in that context, Donegan is in the rhythm section. He's not in the lead section. He's not playing lead banjo. In a, the front line, as I said, is trombone, clarinet, and, and cornet or trumpet. So Donegan's sitting at the back in the, in the, in the uh, banjo uh, rhythm section. But because it's Ken, they continue with this breakdown session business. They continue to because they're also what they're trying to do with their audience. They're also trying to educate the audience. They're trying to um, get the um, always, always uh, suspiciously underlit. This is a breakdown session uh, uh, for Ken Collier's band. This is this is Ken here on acoustic guitar. He was an incredible trumpet player. He kind of sang and played guitar like your drunk uncle. Uh, this is Donegan, who uh, at this period in time is the greatest blues singer that Britain has ever produced. And I would say that continues on until the 1960s. Um, this is Chris Barber, who's the trombone player in the band. He doubles up on, on double bass during the skiffle session. This is the uh, Bill Collier, who's the brother of Ken. Uh, he's playing washboards, sitting down. He's also the band's manager. And this guy, shy guy over here, is Alexis Corner. And yeah, and he's he's playing mandolin there uh, in this band. And I would argue that in this photograph, which was taken probably in 1952, you have the founding fathers of British rock here, all in this photograph. And equally, all all, all five of them, all five of them: Collier for starting the uh, skiffle sessions, Alexis for starting the uh, Ealing Club. Donegan, we don't even have to mention about. Uh, Chris Barber for bringing over all those amazing African-American musicians in the, in the 1960s and introducing them to British audiences and of the work that he did in trad jazz. And Bill Collier, because it was Bill Collier who coined the phrase skiffle. So in that photograph, I would, it was only a short time this band was together playing like this. And Bill Collier used to, used to bring along his 80, sort of 78 records, didn't he? And actually physically play them because there was no that other was way early on, in the early days, before it, they had the breakdown the, session. Yeah, in the intervals. They, he would, he yeah. would play his records because that's the only way you could find out about yeah. this stuff. There's no internet. It wasn't even on the radio. I mean, the BBC had a monopoly on radio at the time. They're not playing trad jazz. You know, and if they are, they're playing it so late at night that none of the kids who are coming to the gig can hear it. Because often these things they... are happening up in, in the function room of pubs where they've got a licence for weddings so young people can come in. And the word skiffle comes from skiffle parties, wasn't it? Is it, is, yes. is it 1930s? Is that right? 1930s expression for raising it's a, money? It's an African-American expression um, for a rent party. When... Um, when people were a short, a short bit of money at the end of the month, they would organise a party, they'd brew some hooch, they would get some musicians in, predominantly boogie-woogie piano players, barrelhouse piano players, and they would be gambling and they would make some money. But the key thing about this is that a skiffle was an event. It was a thing. It was the equivalent of a knees-up. So if you were in an, a knees-up band, you weren't playing knees-up music, you were playing music for a knees-up, Right? Now, 
Bill, Bill Collier had one of the best jazz collections in the UK, jazz, uh, trad jazz records, and he worked in Collets, the, one of the main uh, record shops for this type of music. So he saw all the American imports. And uh, there was a, a, a record that came out in late 1948 uh, by a guy named Dan Burley, who'd played at these skiffles in the 1920s, and he put together a little band to play that old, 20-year-old, old-timey boogie-woogie record. And he called it uh, Dan Burley and his, his uh, Skiffle Boys. So this name was kind of vaguely sort of current. It was very popular in this country, this record. And they, this band did a, uh, a, a radio session for the BBC for the um, uh, World Service as the Ken Collier Jazzmen. And they played their jazz songs and then they reconfigured like this to play skiffle. And the officious geezer from the BBC says, hang on a minute, this isn't Ken Collier's Jazzmen. What is this? What is this music they're playing? This isn't, this isn't trad jazz. So Bill Collier said to the guy, so he had something to write in his form, he said, this is the Ken Collier Skiffle Group. And in that moment, he changed the meaning of the word from an event to a subgenre of African-American roots music that never existed in the United States of America. So the, so the terms means nothing in America no, nowadays. There never was a skiffle band in America. No, okay. It never happened. No. But the key thing is, why did he do that? One, because it was a hip word. And people who are in the trad jazz uh, uh, movement would recognise the hipness in that. Two, it connected what they were doing directly to African-American culture, which was very important to them. But three, and most importantly of all, if he had said that he and his brother were playing the blues, they would have been laughed out of Dodge. They would have been laughed out of Dodge because everyone knows only old black guys can play the blues. Right. So they had to have something else. And so it's a sleight of hand. It's a sleight of hand, but it, but it, but it worked. You know, it worked because it kind of, it kind of gave what came next. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, punk as a term didn't re- wasn't originally about the sex pistols. It was originally about garage bands in America yes, in the yeah, late '60s. Yeah, you know, yeah. the repurposing of the Kings oh, is not an, an un, uh, you know an unknown thing. Yeah, yeah. So who who were the kind of people who were going along to see and hear these kind of performances round about this time? Well, the jazz lot, fans, presumably. Yeah, a lot of students, a lot of students were jazz fans, but a lot of teenagers as well. There's a there's a movie that you can find on uh, YouTube called Mama Don't Allow. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah it's Fantastic. not very long. It's a, it's quite a short movie. It's about twelve minutes, and it's a no it's, dialogue. No, it's a documentary uh, of the Chris Bar. But basically, what happens is um, Collier says he wants to he wants to sack Lonnie Donegan because uh, he can't stand him, and Barber says. Barbara says, no one can stand Lonnie Donegan. That's not enough reason to sack him. <laughs> so they have a vote. The, the band have a vote because uh, they're a, 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 a collective and they decide to sack Collier. They throw him out instead. Uh, and his brother. They can't stand his brother either. So they throw the two of them out. He's not an easy guy to work with, Collier. He's a purist. Amazing artist, amazing guy, but a purist. And so it becomes the, the Chris Barber jazz band with Donegan and uh, Alexis goes with, with, uh, with Collier. Anyway, they, um, they're in the, in the process of, uh, of making their recordings. And this film of um, their gig is like cinema verite. And it's young people getting ready and they go to the gig and when they're playing this song, Mama Don't Allow No uh, Jazz Music, my dear, the trad jazz version, these kids are jiving. They are jiving frantically. There's teddy boys standing there in the corner looking at it. There's women jiving with each other like whirling dervishes. If you turn the sound down and turn up rock around the clock, you would never believe they're dancing to trad jazz. Mm. But they are. 
and they're driving. Part of the reason is because they can't drive in the ballrooms. The main dance uh, uh, centres at the time was ballroom dancing, big bands and ballroom. And ballroom, by its nature, you don't see it on Strictly, but if you've got a room for the ballroom dancers, it's processional. Yeah. It goes in a big, slow circle like a, like a spiral universe like a spiral galaxy, rather. If you're driving, you're more or less occupying more or less the same space. So if, if ballrooms and dancers are waltzing around like this and you're driving on the spot, it's, you know, it's going to be a pile-up. So they banned... And they actually had signs saying, no jive, no bop, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Right. Not because they didn't like it, but because no. it was not compatible with yeah. the way that the older people were dancing. So that's how they ended up coming to these events, as I say, in the, in the, in the uh, function rooms. Yeah. And... Um, and eventually, Donegan, because he was such a great uh, um, entertainer, the uh, breakdown sessions became more popular. Something happened. Pete Townsend in the book tells me that he saw Ken Collier's jazz band at Elian Town Hall in the mid-50s. And his dad was in a big band. His dad was a trombone player in the Squadronaires, Pete's dad. And he said he went to see the band and... Suddenly what happened is the banjo player comes from the back of the stage with a, a guitar and comes and takes control of the gig. And he says, I knew at that moment that this was the future, that I was going to get a guitar, I was going to play this music, and it was going to be goodbye, old man, and that's exactly what happened. And that that's is, a point you made, which I, did, I didn't realise, actually, that Lonnie Donegan was the first person in, in the British charts yeah. to front a record while playing, playing the guitar. guitar. No yeah. one had ever done no, that. No, no, no. So he comes to the front and takes control with, with his acoustic guitar and, and in that provides the first generation of British teenagers with something that defines them as different from their parents. If you, had a, if you played an acoustic guitar, you were more or less on the cutting edge of popular culture. You were saying to your parents' generation... Because previously, if you listened to the radio and you heard people playing guitars, they were always outsiders. They were either singing cowboys, uh, they were old blues guys like uh, uh, um, uh, Big Bill Brunzi, who came over from time to time, or predominantly they were Calypsonians because yeah. the, the Windrush generation were... Um, very much identified with Calypso, although it only came from one island, Trinidad. Uh, it, Calypso came to define the, the Windrush generation, particularly after the West Indies beat England in a test match at the Oval and cricket, lovely cricket come out. And that whole, the BBC used these guys because also Calypso originally was like rap. It was about current event. You know, it was, it was talking about what was happening that day. So they were using Calypsonians on the telly and on, on the radio to do sort of like commentary on things like, uh, you know, that was the week that was and stuff like that, so, or earlier versions of that. So you're out, an outsider, and, and to see Donegan dressed like this, I think this is really key, because Donegan is doing something in this picture that no other British singer has ever done. He's not wearing a dinner jacket. <laughs> right? That's right? He's not wearing a dinner jacket. In, in, in the 50s, all crooners wore DJ. Jimmy Young was a crooner before he was a, 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 a record a disc jockey. And he had a hit just before Donegan um, with the soundtrack of a Jimmy Stewart cowboy movie called The Man from Laramie. And uh, on the sleeve of this record, this cowboy song, he's wearing a DJ. He's wearing a dinner jacket, you know. <laughs> the furthest west, he's not from Laramie, he's from Western <laughs> Supermare. <laughs> so Donegan coming on, coming on like this, looking like a roustabout, with his shirt open, playing a guitar, singing about the railroad. I mean, he's, you know, the only thing he could do 
Moore would be riding a horse and have a cowboy out on. He's completely a new type of culture, a new type of figure. Was there also something about his singing style? That I, th- I think Van Morrison is quoted as saying that, that Van Morrison showed a way for British people to sing American music. Donegan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Donegan's, Donegan's message, his revolutionary message, perhaps the most revolutionary message that was ever imparted to British youth, is twofold. Its first part is you don't have to be a trained musician to play music. And the second part is you don't have to have a, be an old go- black guy to sing the blues. And that, that was a revolutionary mm. idea. Van Morrison, um, he uh, um, was 12 years old. His dad had Lead Belly Records. His dad was a huge African-American jazz and blues collector uh, off the liners coming over from New York. And, but Van wanted to play music, but he could only conceive of playing Irish traditional music. And then he heard Donegan singing Rock Island Line. And as he says to me in the book, you know, there was a lot of guys who wanted to be Elvis, but you couldn't be Elvis if you come from Britain. It no, <laughs> wasn't no, physically no. possible. No. But you could be Donegan. And I think that's, that's the Donegan thing. had this odd, odd little musical style that was kind of in between, wasn't it, really? Well, Donegan's, the key to Donegan's music style is the fact that, um, and it happens on most of his records, is that he speeds up. He gets faster and faster and faster and faster. Now, everything on the radio was... You know, sort of like Mantovani. No, that's true. Yeah. It yeah, was at the time, true. Mantovani and, yeah. and lovely, yeah. and and a bit of you know Helen Shapiro singing. How much is that doggy in the window? You know, that, there was only two types of records. There was jazz tinged uh, uh, ballads for grown ups, and there was novelty records for kids. Donegan comes out of nowhere with this new this new type of music, and the fact that it does speed up. Even the other big record of 1955, Rock Online comes out the end of 1955, Rock Around the Clock, which is another incendiary record which blows people's minds. It's four to the floor all the way through. Yeah. You know, these are very yeah. professional guys. Donegan's record and his performance on the record... Starts really slow. It's on the edge. Man, at the end the, of it, yeah. it's almost the trainers run away with him. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Barber's whooping and hollering in the background. Beryl is, you know playing the washboard like like it's on fire and this you know we, we will never be able to go back to that period and be like those kids were and because the big the big thing is i mean donegan recorded rock island line uh, on the 13th of july 1954 in the decker studios in uh, uh, broadhurst gardens which is in west hampstead the key thing about uh, that day is that just eight days before rationing had ended Rationing of food, rationing of clothes. Someone like, you know, someone like John Lennon, let's say, was born in 1940. He wasn't, until he was 14 years old, he could go in a sweet shop and buy what he wanted. Those kids had, had grown up in the shadow of make, do and mend. They had to listen to this boring BBC music and these kids' records played for them. And all of a sudden, this guy turns up and Rock Around the Clock turns up and the BBC won't play it. I think there was an attitude with the Skifflers that was kind of like, you're going to ration rock and roll. Yeah, you are. We're going to do it ourselves, mate. Yeah, I'm getting yeah. a guitar yeah. and I'm going to play this music whether you want me to or not, Grandad. And yeah. you can stick it if you don't want me to play it. And that's, that, they're the first generation to, to do that because the thing about Skiffle is not only is it DIY, but it's also self-empowering. It's like, get hold of this. I'm going to do this. So let's talk about the practicalities of how people... Um, you know, started playing this stuff because it was y- y- you equipped yourself by what was in the garden shed, didn't you? Very really? much so, yeah, very much I mean, so. Did, what would you need? Well, basically, you'd need an acoustic guitar, uh, but even that with an acoustic guitar, you'd only need three chords. 
any old three chords, you can play the whole of uh, Donegan's repertoire. Uh, you, you need a washboard. Your mum's probably got, or your granny's got a washboard. People had a washboard. You need, a, you need a f- some thimbles. Thimbles. Or an old penny. Yeah, yeah. Just as good. And if you've got a tea chest, turn it upside down, made a hole in the centre, put a bit of twine through, a plank bit on of the twine, back. yeah, and a broom pole, stood it on the top, you could get a kind of rudimentary bass yeah. sound. Because everybody had a tea chest. Yeah. At that time. Everyone had a washboard, everybody had a tea chest. Yeah, because tea came into the UK yes. loose in these great big cases. I, which I, were... I took a tea chest down to the council tip recently and they looked to me as if I'd taken a rare antique. You, you should have took it You should have took it to an antique shop. I they would have bought it off you. Sure. Sold it. <laughs> they would have bought it off Back you, in those days, everybody Yeah, everyone, stuff. yeah. So they, I've still got some in my lockup with stuff in. We're yeah, still using yeah, them as packing yeah, cases. Yeah. But it's such a revolution, isn't it? Because before that, to be a jazz player, you had to be a professional musician. Yeah. You know, you had to be rich enough to be able to afford a saxophone yep. it was. You know, you had to be a certain age to have the experience to play that well. Yeah. And suddenly his music is really easy to play and uh, you make the point also that it's free you know that yeah. it's actually out of copyright you're playing old folk and old blues if, even if you record it you wouldn't really have to pay the, yeah. Yeah. the, the, the kind of the PRS what happens in the UK is in, in, in 1951 they sell 5,000 acoustic guitars in the UK and in, Spe- uh, in Peak Skiffle in uh, 1957 they sell 250,000 acoustic guitars <laughs> yeah, now if you just think one in five of those led to the formation of a Skiffle group uh, well, the, well there's a statistic in the book you said there's 30,000 between 30 and 50,000. Skiffle, between... But now, when we say that, skiffle groups, we're not talking about them playing professional. We're talking about people who are 12... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 13. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, when Donegan plays uh, Liverpool in, in November 1956, George Harrison goes every night. He's 14. No, he's 13. He's 13. McCartney goes one night, comes home and tells his dad he doesn't want to play trombone anymore, whatever it was, trumpet. He wants yeah, to play trumpet, guitar. Yeah. He's 14. We don't know if Lennon goes to see uh, Donegan, but ten days later he forms the Quarrymen with him in a lead and Rock Iron Lion. You know he's, he's singing, uh, yeah. he's singing, uh, putting on the style when McCartney turns up in, in you know yeah. to meet him in, in July of 1957. So Wilton Fate, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're this kind of age. They're the, the kids. They're, they're they're school kids. In, in many ways, the 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 skiffle. They call it the skiffle craze because it was a craze. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with what a fidget spinner is. <laughs> Skiffle was more akin to that than it was to the rise of punk. It was yeah. a playground phenomenon. Yeah. A playground phenomenon. And for some reason, it was almost exclusively boys that played it. But young women also played a really absolutely crucial role in this. Because what happens in 1955, which is the year that the Rock Iron Lion comes out at the very, very end of that year, is the first generation of kids born in 1940 leave school. And they're predominantly working class kids because middle class kids and upper class kids tend to go to university where, where their spending power is deferred. And they go into jobs like training for uh, you know, doctors and lawyers. They don't get the money to spend to the adults. But these working class kids leaving school, there's a boom in, in light industry that can go and work, particularly the young women, can go and work uh, in, in light industry and make good money. They've only got to pay their parents' housekeeping. So in 1955, the sales of women's clothing, makeup and record players goes through the roof. It goes through the roof. And suddenly there's this whole new cohort that's never really existed in British cultural history before. It's teenagers. And they're, they're, you know, they've not got their own social space. So what happens, and this is, again, predominantly young women, they, they can't go in a pub on their own with their mates. 
uh, because it's not socially acceptable. They don't want to go to the lion's corner house in case they see their auntie. The milk bars are for kids. So they start to congregate in the, in the coffee shops, in the, in the cappuccino uh, bars in Soho, which, you know, you know, buy a cup of coffee and stay there till three in the morning if you want to. And in doing this, it's incredibly sophisticated because at the time, in the mid-50s, popular culture in the, in the, in the UK tended to get its, its inspiration from New York and from Los Angeles, from, from music and, and film there. But these young women in the, in the cappuccino bars were looking to Milan, they were looking to Rome, they were looking to Paris. They were kind of, rather than Marilyn Monroe, they were looking to Gene Seberg. That was that kind of difference. And they're in this, the, the coffee bars themselves were sophisticated in the sense that they had these brand new gadget machines, these bright coffee machines. The place was covered in this brand new technology called Formica. And there was often a guy in the corner playing, quietly playing some either French chanson or a bit of flamenco. <laughs> so there was always, already a context for acoustic guitars in this. So when the skiffle boys put their nose around the door and said, can we come and play here? And they realised there were all these young women there. It was a match made in heaven, you know? You can yeah. impress your mates playing football, but play skiffle, you can... You can impress young girls. Yeah. And in many ways, that's why I do this job. That's the fact I was shit at football. I was shit at football. What do you think I'm saying? So that's, and that's, all that that's was going on was because there's skiffle and there's folk and there's kind of, uh, you know, spasm and j- at the end of jazz. All I, I, think, I think if you, if you were 15 in 1957 in Soho and it said skiffle tonight, you would expect to hear music played on guitar. You wouldn't expect just to hear Lonnie Donegan. You would go in and you expect to hear blues, R&B, calypso, maybe some folk music, what we would now refer to as country and western, which they called hillbilly music. It, skiffle meant guitar music in, in its broadest sense. So this is the... I mean, you can see from the wall here, it says skiffle, jazz, folk song, spasm. You know, you could, uh, you could add a, another three or four things to that. And snogging as well. <laughs> and snogging. Clearly allowed. Girls, no petting. Girls. <laughs> <laughs> so where, do they, where do the teddy boys fit into, into all this? Do they... they? They tend to be breaking up the skiffle gigs. <laughs> mm. The teddy boys predate skiffle. They predate Rock Around the Clock as well. Teddy boys are a very interesting phenomenon. Um... In that, they're the, they're the first kind of t- youth cult to define itself um, against the generation that won the war. Like, you had your uniform, this is our uniform, mm. and we want respect for this uniform. So they're, by 1952, they're already in public consciousness. There are already newspaper articles, uh, you know, taking the mickey out of their style, which was how the mainstream media they, reacted to youth culture in those Are they days. the ones who are heading for national service? They, many of them are, and they're trying to get their kicks before they, they know that yeah. when they come out of national service, they're going to get married. So they're doing their best to get their kicks. You know, they're going to go, they might have to go to Korea. Yeah. You know, they're going to, they're going to disappear off. So they're, they're kind, they are around, and you do see in, in the jazz club, uh, in that movie, the, the uh, Mama Don't Allow, there's guys with, you know, uh, leather uh, yeah. you know, draped jackets and stuff like like that um, so they are around but they're not really into skiffle that much right right so um, 
moving on. Well, there's, yeah. there's another, you mentioned Johnny Ray in the book, which I thought was absolutely yeah. Johnny Ray is the first is the first uh, kind of modern modern uh, pop singer. He, in many ways, he's he's the antithesis of Frank Sinatra in the fact that he would break down and cry on stage, and he's kind of like the first kind of geek rock and roll star. So he's a bit like a bit like Morrissey in that sense, <laughs> yeah. or, or or but no, but he's fallible, isn't he? I mean, his whole stage act was to come on and go. I'm I'm kind of damaged. But he you didn't know, only I'm, do that. He I'm he not, he kind of. He kind of beat himself up on the stage. I found a review that talked about him banging his head on the piano. And when Elvis came along, everyone like women, said... Women loved it. Everyone, yeah, women yeah. absolutely loved yeah. it. Because, you know, we, if, you, if, you're, you know, if you're not a very confident uh, teenager or not a very confident teenager's mum, there's no way Frank Sinatra is going to give you a second look. But if there's a bloke on stage crying... You think to yourself, yeah. poor thing. I put my arm around him. Yeah, 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 oh yeah. man, there's nothing more powerful than mother love in rock and roll. Let me tell you. <laughs> I mean, he he was once knocked unconscious by his fans uh, after a gig in Glasgow. He made the mistake of going out among them, and they went so mad for him because there'd never been anything like it before. Before everyone just sat there and listened. When Elvis came, there were loads of letters in the Melody Maker saying he's just he's just ripping off Johnny Ray. What's his yeah. second? You know, yeah, you can't even sing. Original. You can't even sing like Johnny Ray. You know, <laughs> it's like, and Johnny Ray only wrote two songs. He wrote "Cry" <laughs> and "The Little Cloud That Cried." You know, yeah. you know, the only thing he was going to go after that was he was going to write "Incontinence." <laughs> Or something like that. Oops, I've weed myself. <laughs> Heaven knows I'm incontinent now. <laughs> I mean, it kind, but it of, kind was... of made it. It made it all right for a kind of ordinary people, as you say. They're not the I mean, confident, fabulous it, Frank Sinatra types. It's a new type of singer. It doesn't. It doesn't. Which um, helps Skiffle. It doesn't register so much now. But if you go back and look at the the, the record at the time, the whole screaming thing it predates Elvis. It's Johnny. Yeah. It's Johnny Ray. He kind of flicks the switch. Yeah. He's crying, you're crying. It's kind of like, it's, you know, I mean, I know people who went to see uh, uh, Ziggy Stars, David Bowie, and they said the, in the audience like that, it was incredibly emotional. You know, they were really yeah. in it. And Johnny Ray was the first guy to do that. It was, it was unbelievable, the effect he had. And you make brilliantly the point that, that you know, the people getting interested in Skiffle, just, they just don't want to be looking back. You know, the movies that are being made are things like the Dam Busters. Nobody wants to be looking back at the Second World War. You know, they're they, looking they've, to American They've grown culture. up with it. They want it, they you know... The Skiffle kids are using African-American music to build a bridge to the future. Yeah. They're trying to escape. That's why all the songs are about trains. Mm. They're trying to get out of town. They've had it. You know, they, this is... I, 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 a, a former Skiffle kid told me in the book that it wasn't uncommon to hear Skiffle kids say that they felt they had more in common with an African-American sharecropper than they did with their own dad. You know, because it, they just didn't feel that experience that people had had in the war is so different. And it was so, um, I mean, m- maybe some of you in the room are rem- are remember and spoke to your parents about the war. But when I was growing up, my parents and my grandparents talked about the war as if it was the, uh, the old country where they'd lived before and they they were quite fond of it there were things they did in the war they never ever got to do again and they talked about it with an affection that was really strange and down the street where I lived I kind of knew all what the men down that street had done during the war because either my old man told me or their sons told me and that you know that was for someone born in 57 if you'd actually been in 1940 and grown up with it 
you know, you can you can imagine why you might want to distance yourself from that. And, and commercial and, television and, happened in 1955. So yeah. suddenly, because BBC wouldn't touch the Lucy Show, they wouldn't. Touch no, no. There's uh, suddenly Roy a whole Rogers. new world. Isn't and it's there, just pretty, It's all that stuff. In 1955, in 1955, uh, independent television starts in London. And because they don't have the budget of the BBC, they buy in their programmes from America. So it's Singing Cowboys and I Love Lucy. And, uh, which and, all feeds and, into and the Liberace show, which yeah, is very popular right. with fans, fans of Johnny yeah, Ray yeah, for yeah. other reasons. Um, and um, that, that kind of, it does feed in it because the Cowboys, as I say, very often were singing. And in, in the middle of 1955, um, uh, Rosemary by Slim Whitman gets to number one and stays there for so long that it was only beaten by um, Brian Adams. Yeah, uh, yeah. I do everything I do for you in the in the eighties and nineties, whenever it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that introduces the acoustic guitar, and, and on the f- following that, there's songs like Sixteen Tons and uh, other kind of cowboy man from Laramie. You know, it kind of introduces a kind of period of what they referred to then as hillbilly music. The British press called it hillbilly music, but we would now call it country and western. Yeah. And in many ways, Donegan rides in on that as well. It's a kind of mixture of rock around the clock. It's got the word rock in the beginning. And he's there with the open shirt like a cowboy. Yeah. And it kind of somehow, because Decker put the record out, Decker put Rock Island Line out in the end of 1955. It was recorded in 1954. And it was on a jazz record. You know, it was on a trad jazz record. It was recorded in the context of Chris Barber's uh, uh, jazz band, trying to make a, an album of new material, but they didn't have enough material. They just didn't... They wanted to fill the album. They, yeah. They, they just yeah. last minute the, thought, was yeah. it? And the Amazing. producer said, you know... You've got to have, uh, you've got to have uh, uh, 10 songs because there's so much money at stake. It's costing £35 to make this record. <laughs> and Decker will never get to make another trad jazz record because they, they were at the edge. You know, he'd have to convince Decker to let these young yeah. rebels, these young Turks, make a record. So Donegan said, well, let's do somebody else's skiffle records. So they think, OK. So they, they, they kind of... Donegan saves the session by playing a couple of souped-up old blues songs, Rock Iron Line and John Henry. And this is and it came out the same week as Rock, uh, Rock Around the Clock. No, literally a week after Elvis Presley records That's All Right by, uh, for Sun Records in Memphis. It's exactly the same deal. A record session that's going nowhere because uh, Sam Phillips is trying to get Elvis to croon some uh, old country songs. And he, he says, all right, it's not working. He says, take a break. Elvis starts goofing around with That's All Right. Scotty and Bill join in. Goofing around, really, having a laugh, and 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 Sam says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What are you doing?" And I said, "We don't know." He says, "Well, back it up, start it again. Let's record that." And that's how Elvis and Scotty and Bill uh, record. And, and it's also interesting as well. It's a three-piece, no drums, sped-up old blues song. I would argue that, or I do argue in the book, that rockabilly is the closest that the Americans came to skiffle. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that it, it kind of um, doesn't have drums. You know, the great, you could argue that um, Sun Sessions Elvis is a great, great rockabilly band, but I would argue that the rock and roll trio, Johnny Burnett, uh, Dorsey Burnett, and Paul Burleson, is the actual greatest rockabilly band that ever existed. And I'll fight anyone who says otherwise. And, um, <laughs> and so will a load of Ted's, I know. And they. <laughs> And they, you know, they were so synonymous with Skiffle that when Donegan went on a rock and roll tour in America in 1956 after Rock and Roll was a hit, uh, the, the, the rock and roll trio, Johnny Burnett trio, offered to back him up. And, and because he was having to play, he was having to play Rock Island Line with the pit orchestra every theatre they played in, oh, yes. and he never yeah. had the he never had the music. Yeah. So the, so Johnny Burnett said, you know, why don't you let us back back you up? 
And Donegan being Donegan said, oh, I couldn't afford that. And uh, Johnny said, no, we're not talking about money, man. We're talking about music. We love what you're doing. So for that short period, Rockabilly and Skiffle met each other as equals and maybe even recognised that yeah. they, they, you know, they were blood relatives, even though they'd come from completely different sides of the Atlantic. And, and Rock Island Line, massive hit in America. I mean, it was. You talk about Donnie Donegan going over there, and at one moment he's on the Perry Como show with Ronald Reagan. Yeah, he was, yeah. I mean, he did a skit. He did a skit with Ronald Reagan <laughs> on the Perry Como show. And after the tour ended, he, he went back to Memphis with uh, Johnny Burnett, and they hung out in Memphis and, and went to see Elvis. Elvis wasn't in. I went to Graceland, so Elvis wasn't there. Well, you touched, touched them on a few times. I'd like you to talk about it a bit more. Lonnie Donegan has a reputation as being, not being an easy person. That's true. <laughs> In what um, way? Chris Barber said the problem with Donegan was his hero was Max Miller. And so he was a bit of a cheeky chappy. Um, and other, other people... Um, uh, someone told me that they used to refer... To, his real name is Tony. His real name is not Lonnie. His real name is they used to refer to him as... Tony fucking Donegan. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, he was a bit of a... Yeah, he was a bit of a... bit of an handful. In, in many ways, him and, him and Collier were, were in, in a similar kind of way. Um, a bit of a chip on their shoulder. But I mean, they're both working-class lads yeah. who, who were kind of getting away with it quite a bit. Right. Um... So, yeah, he, did, he was a bit full of himself, but he needed to be. He needed a figure like that who was capable of getting hold of a room by the scruff of the neck and, and firing it up. It couldn't have been anybody else. It certainly could have been Ken. And lovely bloke, though, Chris Barber is. It couldn't have been Chris either. And Alexis was kind of... Uh, wasn't a great musician. He was an amazing... Uh, uh, Focuser of, of, yeah, yeah. of people's attention on R&B but I mean Chris Barber said to him one time you know all those years in an interview just like this all those years you played me I can never really remember your guitar playing at all and Alexis said well Chris I never had an amp <laughs> <laughs> so you know it needed Donegan Donegan so Donegan is the, is the so spark so Donegan you know Ends up selling all these records and yeah. headlining big shows and so forth. How, how do the how do the kind of skillful fraternity feel about him? How do the folk fraternity feel about him? Well, the, it's the jazz. It's the triad jazz people don't really despise him. They really despise, despise. him. Yeah, they despise him because he's successful, and uh, and and that's classic. He keeps bringing all bring all these bloody kids in. They don't know nothing about. I don't know nothing about Lead Belly. You know, these kids keep coming in. You know, the, the journalists write about him. You know, why would you buy Lonnie Donegan when you can buy the Lead Belly record? Yeah. They don't really understand what's going on, really. Uh, but he's, uh, his run of hits is just phenomenal. I mean, he, you know, he, he starts recording uh, Woody Guthrie songs, which nobody had done before. Nobody had put Woody Guthrie in the charts. He weirdly tells Melody Maker he's writing the songs with Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie's in hospital with Huntington's disease. Can't really hold a guitar anymore. Um, and he's kind of he's kind of playing the the. Oh, don't show me that. Oh, um, <laughs> that's the first record that Donegan puts out. Doesn't have the word skiffle on the sleeve. And this is my old man's a dustman. Everything goes old man, uh, down, down the right, down the hill from there. I'm afraid. But um, he is he is absolutely. Um, uh, that, that key character. He, one of his songs uh, he has a big hit with is a song called Stubal. And um, Stubal is a song about a race horse that tells uh, its rider how to win a horse race. Now, um, 
Donegan learned it off Lead Belly. Lead Belly, he may have learned it um, off of the Lomaxes because it was the most um, common song they found when they were recording actually African-American field workers. It was the most common song they found. Lead Belly was a field worker. He may have learned it orally. A hundred years before he did that, it was the most popular song on the eastern seaboard of the United States of America. A hundred years before that, it was being sold as a broadside ballad in Georgian London. But the actual event happened at the Curra of Kildare in Ireland, the actual racehorse, uh, uh, horse race it's based on. So the question is, in terms of cultural appropriation, who does this song <laughs> <Yeah>. belong to? Because <laughs> it sure as hell ain't Lead Belly. No disrespect. No, that's right. that's and the least Donegan's mum was Irish, so he had half a shout on Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. You know, so that, there was a lot of that going on, you know. Uh, but really what Donegan was doing was he was introducing all these kids to, uh, to African-American roots music. And, that, and for that, you know, they were... Because they, they were... At the time, you could go to the library... Um, the American uh, uh, embassy in Grosvenor Square and there was the uh, uh, the US Information Service which their job was to promote American culture so you could borrow books but in the basement they had the entire collection of the um, uh, Library of Congress recordings that were made by people like John Lomax and you could borrow those records so you know this is sort of um uh, Muddy Waters at Parchment Farm and stuff like yeah, that. You yeah. couldn't buy these records in shops. No one was importing yeah, these records, no. but you could get them there. And Donegan worked out that if you stole a record, they would just order another one. So he used to nick them. <laughs> they would go in, people would go, and someone tells you the book, they went to, to um, get it. And he said, Oh, I'm afraid of Mr. Tony Donegan has had it for the last year. <laughs> he was nicking them, yeah. People, people spit nails about it. So at the end of the, the, end of the book, you talk about the, 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 folk, the folk boom. Mm, yeah. You know, the Ramblers and Nancy Whiskey yeah. and Freight Train and all that. And that ultimately produces, you know, Bob Dylan and the, the, the kind of folk revival. Yeah. And then you talk about, you know, the rock and roll explosion, yeah. you know, which comes on the back of Skiffle as well. Yeah. So Skiffle's kind of over, but there's a, there's a brilliant bit you talk about the, the connection with the, the 1959 uh, Aldermaston March. Yeah. And, you know, there are people playing Skiffle instruments and it, it, it seems to be that Skiffle and the kind of a whole aesthetic is, is, is caught up with the, a political Yeah, well, I mean, Skiffle was very anti-commercial. Yeah. I mean, so was Collier. Collier as well. Yeah. Trad Jazz was anti-commercial. So they kind of fit together, and they were quite radical as well. I mean, not only did they get involved in the Aldermaston march, the Daily Telegraph uh, sub-headline for Aldermaston was they skiffled their way to Aldermaston. But they also got involved in something called the Stars Campaign for Interracial Friendship, following the, there were race riots in uh, Notting Hill in 1958 where Oswald Mosley and the British Union of Fascists were stirring up racial hatred. Notting Hill at the time was predominantly uh, West Indian uh, immigrants. And there was a race riot over the August bank holiday. The next week, front page Melody Maker, there was an open letter from uh, people like Ken Collier signed it, Donegan signed it, Chris Barber signed it, a uh, load of skifflers signed it, uh, uh, Tommy Steele signed it, uh, and they set up this thing called the Stars Committee for Interracial Friendship to promote bringing black and white kids together. It was, it was, uh, the, the, it was fronted by uh, Cleo Lane and Johnny Dankworth for a multiracial couple. And it's kind of like the beginnings of Rocking Against Racism. And Skiffle was at the heart of that. You know, the skifflers were... were all, 
always in you know in support of, of racial harmony and doing that kind of stuff. So the politics of the of it come together like they do in punk, you know. Yeah. They both they both kind of come in together. And we should talk about all the, all the bands. That, I mean, the, the Beatles, the Stones. I mean, what you know, the um, Jimmy Page had a skiffle band, Deep Purple, everybody, all, all those, everybody from that all generation. those big sixties and seventies names. This is the key thing. This is the key thing. If you go back and listen to the music that was made at the time. It's rather unprepossessing. Apart from Rock Island Lion, which is incendiary in its own way, there's a couple of other songs that have hooks. But it's not what happened in the 1950s about Skiffle that is key. It's what happens in the 1960s. Because what, what Skiffle does is it teaches free chords to every sentient 13-year-old in the United Kingdom. <laughs> free chords, you can play all Lead Belly's repertoire, but you can also play all of Chuck Berry's repertoire. So Holly. by the time you get to well, Buddy Holly's like the, yeah. like an electric skiffler, yeah. you know. Um, so by the time you get to fifty nine and sixty, where their American peers who are the same age you are now, sort of nineteen and twenty, are the folk boom happens in America, and they start learning to play guitar. Our kids are already in Hamburg. You know, they're that far ahead. So when the Beatles break into the American charts in January 1964, there's a whole cohort of road-hardened bands ready to follow them into the American charts. Between 1964, January, and January 1966, there's a British group at number one in the Billboard charts for 52 weeks out of 104. Every single one of them originated in a skiffle band except for Tudor Clark. <laughs> she'd been making records since she was 12 years old she didn't need Lonnie Donegan to tell her how to make records so that yeah. she's the exception and she's a girl yeah. as I said girls for some reason I don't know why well I do know why it's the patriarchy didn't really play skiffle it's these guys um uh a big skiffle occurs on the 9th of July 1957 when uh, the fellow on the left meets the fellow on the right when he's playing a skiffle gig uh, in uh, uh, Wooten, in Liverpool yeah. and uh, it's, uh, it's a very interesting um, quote I found from a guy who was um, set to mind the Beatles when they first got to Hamburg in 1960 by um, the guy who ran the Star Club, he got this, he found this old wrestler guy in Hamburg and he said he was, kind of, he was kind of like their roadie, but it was also like their minder to keep him out of trouble. And when the Beatles broke in America, they sent some radio DJ from America to, to Hamburg and they found this guy and they said to him, what were they like when they, when they first arrived? And he said, ah, he said, the Beatles, they played too much washboard music. <laughs> <laughs> the British bands, they think Lonnie Dunning and his Elvis Presley. And the implication from that is that the Beatles were still a skiffle band when they got to Hamburg. And when you think about it, they were the front line from the, the, the quarrymen, McCartney, Lennon and George Harrison, with a mate of theirs who played uh, drums, Pete Best, and, you know, the best-looking guy from our school trying to play the bass. Stuart Sutcliffe. So it's actually Hamburg that turns them into the great rock and roll band. Yeah. They're still scraping away. That's what skiffle. the American sailors want to hear. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the Germans too. I mean, the and Germans, Germans can't, yeah. you know, they, they can't get American bands to come to Germany. Yeah. So they, they, that's what, that's what yeah. Horst, what's his name, he comes to the two eyes. Is He's it? looking for bands that can sound like America. To, to the Germans, it didn't really matter, as long as it was in English with a slightly American accent. Yeah. yeah. They just wanted to dance to it. Yeah. So you, you know. were saying before we began that uh, Please Please Me was there. I would argue that Please Please Me, yeah, is the greatest skiffle record ever made. Okay. <laughs> and I'll tell you where the skiffle bit is. It's in the turnarounds between the verses. That is pure skiffle. All right. Okay. That is pure skiffle. And I think McCartney... Um, 
hugely influenced by by Buddy Holly. And I think anybody who was playing skiffle uh, who saw Buddy Holly on Saturday night, the Sunday night at the London Palladium in 1958 when he played Peggy Sue, uh, that clip might have even been from that, that photograph, would have seen electric skiffle. Because the thing about Buddy is all chords, even the solo in... Uh, uh, Peggy Sue is chords it's not lead so he's just playing chords and it's only three chords as well and I think anybody who saw that would think okay that is the future I can do that McCartney said as much in fact but I think you've got to see Buddy as, as, as having that kind of um, not only did he play Skiffle but he wrote his own material and the problem with Skiffle was it, it was only a certain amount of material because it was all old stuff you know, when I had these skiffle competitions in, in the in the fifties, uh, in, in the mid fifties, uh, you know, they'd have sort of twenty bands, and they would all play "Don't You Rock Me, Daddy" over and over and over <laughs> yeah. again. You know, and it was this frustration that led you know Lennon and McCartney to start writing their own stuff. You know, just to get out of this, you know. And they wrote what did they wrote about one after nine. I know a bloody train song. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. So yeah. you know, that's that's kind of the the thread of it. Well, Billy. It's a terrific book. You're very kind, and, David. Uh, it's been rightly acclaimed as such, hasn't it? It, it has. Many yeah, people's been, book, book of the year. It's been doing well in America. It's been doing very well in America, uh, which is important to me because I think the Americans don't really... Um, they love the Beatles and the British invasion so much, but they don't really understand the context. I've, I've, to me, context is everything. One of the proudest things... Um, for me about this book is the fact that Rock Island Line gets into the charts in chapter 13 of a 26-chapter book. Because normally when you read about Skiffle, um, it's in the context of the biography of a 60s or 70s rock star. And obviously people have to talk about Skiffle. You get two or three pages about it, but they all treat Rock Island Line getting into the charts like a singularity. And, you know, nothing happens just like that. And my own experience during punk rock made me realise that there must have been something before this. And it was the unspeakable thing that no one talks about. Trad jazz. Yeah. So, you know, putting my waders on and going into that. <laughs> I've now come away with nothing but respect for those guys and appreciation for, for uh, what trad jazz did and how, why these guys in, in um, you know, late 40s Britain teenagers would cleave to African American culture so strongly something that was quite alien to them but yet this music did something to them that, that they, they you know they wanted it made them want to play and get up and play and, and that that's what you know that's how things that's how things change in culture you've done us all the service ladies and gentlemen Billy Bragg thank you this podcast was brought to you by the word softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.